as we continue to consider how God restores that which is broken, we come to a very important part of the life of Jacob. Jacob has thoroughly, totally, and absolutely destroyed his name and his reputation. He has been the supplanter, the trickster, the beguiler for so many years that he's destroyed his name. The name Jacob meant something negative to everybody round about him. And he had gotten to a place where truly blessings were not available when you mentioned his name. So God steps in to restore him in a way that no one else can. What he has given by a change of name is not a gift for his loyalty or his, his success or his ability. It's correcting a negative in his life. It's fixing something he broke that only God could restore. And if we want to be truly blessed and be a blessing to others, we must allow God to break us down. To take away our self-reliance and to take away our sin. And God will rebuild us in the way that we are to be made. All of us are broken in some way. It's just only a few of us that are willing to admit it. Because God has a way to move us where we're supposed to be. Many people have the idea, and it's not scriptural and, and, and at all, and certainly isn't preached, uh, not, not, in, not in Baptist pulpits anyway, that God just sprinkles stardust on our lives in whatever direction we want to go. He'll bless it. No, not at all. The problem is we were going the wrong way when Jesus found us. We were destined for destruction. And God didn't save us simply because He was in a mood to save. He saved us because He has a purpose for us. There's a potential in our lives there that is to be fulfilled, but only when we become, in His image, what we should be. There's a real blessing in brokenness. And we forget about that. If we can just admit that we're there or we need to go there, then we will be changed. The 22nd verse, it says that that night Jacob got up, took his wives and his maidservants and his sons and, and crossed over the Jabbok uh, little estuary there. Jacob is about to enter the land of promise. And this is significant. This is, this is the land of blessing for him. And there's a reason he stayed back. Because he knew that he was not who he should be. After he sent them across the stream, he stayed there alone and he encountered a very unusual situation. Scripture says this is a man, and it only says that because it indicates that it's, number one, not someone other than a human visage. It, this was somebody with two arms and two legs, a body and a head. It was not a divine appearance. It was a real, substantial, physical appearance. But the person within that form was God himself. You can actually say that, that the angel of the Lord is the appearance of God. 
and it is an angel. This is one of the most unusual appearances that we will find. This, I believe, alone with one more, the appearance of Melchizedek to his grandfather, are both appearances of God. When God came down to, to look at his creation face to face, now think about that. You can be an employee of a corporation for many years and not even know the name of the person who owns or operates the business. You may know their name and you may see a picture of them somewhere and never really meet them. Very seldom does someone on the lower echelon of a corporation ever get to know the person that's at the pinnacle of the corporation. Just very rare for that to happen. But God appeared to his creation many times because there was something he wanted to say or do that no one else could handle. Only he could do that. Do you know that's the relationship he has with you? He loves you that much. He has a purpose and a place for you, a destiny to fulfill. If you've not found that destiny, you need to get busy and find it because God will prepare you for it. And the preparation always seems to begin with brokenness. Jacob is about to enter that land of promise and it's a land of blessing, but before he can get there, he needs to be broken. Brokenness means that you give up your dreams and aspirations and your ideas of what should be ahead, and you embrace, literally, you don't embrace God's set of plans, you embrace God. And then he will unfold his plans to you step by step. You see, Christianity is not about accepting a, a, a series of belief systems. It's, you know... Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people will, will complain about we Baptists because we we're an odd lot. We're, we're strange. But we say that we have no creed but the Bible. And here's what that means. A set of words or statements cannot fully encompass the personality of the true and the living God. And we embrace his book fully and totally because that is the guidance upon which we depend and amazingly, that book won't survive this world. One day when earth is destroyed and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and we are there with him, amazingly, there will not be a book like this in heaven. Now, some people get upset with me when I say that. But it's the truth, isn't it, Jeff? Because suddenly in heaven, he will write his words on our heart, and we will be the book. We will be the living testimony of Jesus Christ. That is what God has desired all along. And sometimes we forget that God is working out His work in this world in a beautiful way. And we're to submit to that work obediently and quickly. Genesis 23, uh, 32, 23, and 24 says, After he had sent them across the stream, that's when he was left alone, and the fight began. Now, th this fight is a little bit unusual because God has a play on words here in Genesis. It's, it's, it's a little ironic here because he uses the name Jacob. He uses 
the Jabbok uh, uh, estuary there, the little creek, and then he uses the word wrestle. All three of those are Hebrew words that come from the same root. Uh, Jacob's name is Yabak, the river is the Yabak, and to wrestle is the Yabak. And God is playing a little game with the words there when he gives that to Moses. Genesis was given to Moses to write down. And he's reminding them that the God of this world has a sense of humor. And he sees something of humor in what's going on. Amazingly, in that wrestling match that, that, that God gets in with him, he's testing Jacob. He's trying him. Because what has Jacob done? Here's what he's doing. He's got one last effort to save his own hide from his brother that he cheated. And he's putting all these gifts out in front for him, trying to impress him. And he's hoping to slow down the progression of the anger of his brother so that those 400 men won't feast on his carcass. Now, a lot of what we are in life is based upon our presuppositions about life. What do you presuppose about life? If you presuppose that God is out there trying to make your life miserable and take joy away from you, I can tell you, you will never trust God. And you will never obey what He tells you to do, especially if you don't know where it's going. Obedience to God is required, and he very seldom gives us an understanding of why we are to obey. The reality is, in, in this situation with, with Jacob, he was still trying to play the game his way. He thought, well, I'll just I'll manipulate my brother one more time. I'll appeal to his conscience, and he'll think, my brother's given me so many gifts Surely I can't destroy him. You see, the problem is, Jacob is not willing to accept the fact that God has already said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your family. They'll number more than the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven. I will bless you. And yet he can't take that and believe that God is able to meet his every need. He's got to have control. So what does God do? He appears, and he confronts him. They get into a wrestling match, and, and, and Jacob is really wound up, and, and all Jacob can think about is, you know, what is going on here? And he continues to fight all night long, and then God does something that is so remarkable. He blesses him, but he pulls his hip out of joint, literally pulls the hip socket out of joint. That was a wound back then in those days that literally left a person lame the rest of their life. They would always walk with a limp. It was a mark from God that he would never forget. It was a mark not as some marks might be, but it was not a mark of ownership, but it was a reminder of the frailty of Jacob in the midst of his thinking he was it. He had all abilities because he is confronted with the reality that his brother may kill him and everything may end right here. And God is trying to give him a lesson about truth, about what he really is. 
You know, it's amazing when he, when he does that to him, he changes his name, and he changes his name not because he's giving him a better name, but he's giving him a name that's not broken by him. Jacob had become a name that people literally despised. Everyone that had ever encountered him, especially his father-in-law Laban, when they heard the name Jacob, they just had a very sad, angry look on their face. Because Jacob had become a person who thought he had control of everything. There's nothing any more frustrating in life than believing that you have control over the elements in life. We got a curveball some months ago, didn't we, with this whole coronavirus. We never imagined that we would have a disease like this to literally bring America to its knees. But it has. People are terrified. The more they hear, the more upset they become. This thing's not going away. Remember when they told you that the, we're going to flatten the curve for a few weeks and everything will be fine? Well, the, the curve still isn't flattened. And we're still terrified. You see, we've got to trust just one person. Not the president, not Dr. Fauci, not any of the news outlets, what they say. No, 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 no. We can't trust those at all. We have to trust God. Only God can deliver us and keep us safe. Only God can protect us from something that the human eye can't even see. Only God can take care of us and watch over us. And many of us are like Jacob. We think we can control things. We think that somehow something like this will keep us safe. Now, it's an effort in the right direction. But the only person that really can keep you safe is God. He's the only one. And that's why if you have this without Him, you're hopeless. We've got to trust in God. God is wrestling with Jacob. A supernatural being who, who breaks Jacob down in the area of his self-confidence and his self-sufficiency. He knows what he's doing. I want you to think about this today, what, how God works in your life in the same way. Allow God to conquer your self-reliance. I know people that believe that somehow if they do the right amount of exercise and take the, 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 the correct pills, stay on a certain diet, and live a, a certain fastidious life, that they'll be fine. But the reality is there are people that die every day that something comes out of left field that they never imagined. We must let God break us in the areas where we think we're in control. Now, I'm not saying quit living a disciplined life. I'm not saying that you should not follow these, these you know, regulations that you're given. They're good. But don't believe they will save you in the same way that God will preserve you. Chuck Swindle once said, when God wants to use a man greatly, he must first hurt him deeply. Think about that. When God wants to use a person greatly, he must hurt him deeply. Why would he do that? Because he needs to move him in the area that he can use him, where he will pay attention to him. 
No person has ever been treated any more brutal than that young, innocent, inquisitive young person that went to boot camp, looked around, saw all their friends, and thought, wow, this is going to be great. Two weeks later, they feel that they have awoken in hell because that tech sergeant absolutely is tearing them apart, ridiculing them, criticizing them, letting them know they're meaningless there. And what they're doing is exactly what God does to us. He wants to break us down of all of our presuppositions, all of our our ideas about who and what we are, and teach that soldier that when they hear their commanding officer speak, they are implicitly obedient because their obedience will save their lives and probably the lives of everyone else. That's what boot camp is all about. And God has his own boot camp for us to go through because he's trying to conquer our our self-centered self-reliance that we have. When I first heard the story that as a student in seminary preparing for ministry that God did this, I, I was confused because I thought that meek and lowly Jesus loved us. Well, yes, he does, and he died for us. But God, our Creator, has plans for us that are beyond the pale. Billy Graham is in heaven now, but Billy Graham went through a number of stages of brokenness in his own life. He started out early on following some of the wrong preachers and listening to them, and and he was led astray. He, He ended up watering down the stories he told about the gospel. He left out things about hell and destruction and fear of judgment because a very popular New York minister, Harry Emerson Fostick, said, oh, you know, people, people, people don't hear that. Yet sometimes people are so hard-hearted they have to hear that. And Billy Graham came back to the truth of what he should do. Billy Graham was in school Bible school, Florida Bible Institute. It had been an old country club. It had a golf course around it that was no longer used. And many times the students would go out and walk on that, on that uh, uh, land around there that was growing up, becoming literally woodland again. And one night, a short teacher there, named, the name of Vance Havner, went for a walk with a young Billy Graham. Billy Graham was about 22 years old. And as they walked on that uh, that grassy knoll, they stopped at a place and Billy Graham said this to the very short, five foot six, Vance Havner. He said this, he said, Dr. Havner, I'm trying to find a way to redirect my life to become more for God. Now that sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? He wants to redirect his life so he can be more what God needs. He wants to fix his life. Vance Havner looked at him and he says, Billy, that'll never happen. He said, what you need to do is surrender your life to God and let him prepare you because you never will. In his autobiography, Billy Graham said that was a seminal moment in his life that changed everything because suddenly he realized I'm not putting myself into shape to go into God's army. God will put me through basic training to prepare me. And he said, that's when everything in my life changed. 
So many of us don't understand the importance of that. All God's servants have to go through that. Before God used Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, God had to put him on the backside of the desert, taking care of sheep for 40 years. There was a purpose in that. Before God used Isaiah, one of Israel's greatest prophets, he had to bring Isaiah to the point where he cried out, Woe is me! Before God used the great apostle Paul in the New Testament, he had to give him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited and self-centered. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, three times I, I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more uh, gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. I'm pretty sure that the thorn in the flesh was not poor eyesight, nor was it a bad marriage. I think it was a very painful, horrible, debilitating situation that the Holy Spirit of God said, don't even list it because we don't want people to run from that. We want them to understand that that will be the seminal situation in their life that may change them when it comes about. Even Christ's body had to be broken on the cross before the blessing of his salvation could come to a broken world. Understand that and understand the importance of that. I'd mentioned Vance Havner. Vance once said, God uses broken things. Broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gave forth its perfume and a sacrifice to Jesus. It is Peter weeping bitterly who returns to greater power than ever before. Brokenness is a part of what we're to be. Are you broken today? Are you where God wants you to be? Or are you open to Him? Or are you still struggling with Him about things? Allow God to free you of your sin. That may be the act of brokenness. That may be the area that you hold on to that you don't want to give up. Sometimes God wants us to have a pineal in our life because it says here in this place, Jacob, or rather Israel, renamed that spot because that is the place he saw the face of God. Some people don't want to encounter God face to face. It's not that they're fearful he will destroy them. Many people know that God will demand something of them and they're just not ready to, to surrender to him. Some people struggle with the reality of that, but they don't understand what God wants to do in their life. Some years ago, you remember the, situa the situation in Amsterdam in the uh, Regix, uh, uh Museum there where someone went in, a crazed man rushed into the building and found Rembrandt's famous painting, The Night Watch, and began to slash it with a, with a long machete, tearing it to pieces. Strangely enough, a few days after that, there in, in, in Rome, Michelangelo's probably most honored and beautiful statue, Pieta, uh, where Mary is holding Christ as he is dying. 
It was attacked with a sledgehammer. Chips from as small as a grain of sand to the size of your fist flew everywhere. I tell you these two, two stories because both of those situations, nobody went to a dumpster and threw those things away. Why? Because they both still had value. Some of the greatest restorers went to work on the painting immediately. And it still hangs there. And the night watch and the beauty of it still appeals to literally hundreds of thousands of people each year that travel to the Reykjavik Museum to see it. The Pieta is back together and you cannot even tell where it was attacked. In fact, they destroyed most of the pictures of it because they didn't want people to remember that. Some of the best conservators in the world put that back together. I tell you this to say that this to you. God the Holy Spirit is the greatest restorer ever known in the world. And the Holy Spirit of God wants to restore you to what God intended for you to be. Not what you want to be. Not what you would like to be or, or would want to appear to be, but what God wants you to be. And if you will trust Him, He will take you through the steps of breaking down your self-reliance and your self-centeredness and your self-planning. And He will bring about something so miraculous that you will become someone that only God could create. And that's when the beauty of God's hand begins to work. Your life may be the linchpin of beginning revival in your home, in your community, in your workplace, or in this church. Are you willing to surrender? I pray that you will. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much that in your holy word, you guide us in the direction that is right. You never fail us. You never walk away from us. You never give up. You always, always, always bless us. And I pray right now, Lord, if there's someone here within the sound of my voice that's struggling in their life to do what is right, to be obedient to find their way to fulfill their destiny, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would speak in a mighty way to them and they would surrender themselves even now and that your hand would begin the process of rooting out and weeding out that self-centeredness that we so often build up in our lives and that you would free them from that. Father, speak to someone right now as we sing the first words of the invitation hymn, may they be willing to surrender to you. And we pray this in your holy name, Lord. Amen.